For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Good morning, everyone. For new people, I'm Taigen Layton, the guiding teacher of Ancient Dragons Zengate. Welcome, everyone. I'm very happy to have giving the talk today Juan Pablo Restrepo, who is one of our um, distant Zoom participants, actually one of a few, several people who come to us from other countries than the United States. Um, and uh, Juan Pablo is uh, a native of Colombia in South America, but is now living in uh, Patagonia in Argentina, in southern Argentina. So uh, I believe Juan Pablo is experiencing winter now, or the onset of winter. Um, so here it's hot in Chicago. Um, Juan Pablo is an a anthropology PhD candidate who's uh, working on um, very interesting aspects of the environment and environmentalism, uh, including referring to Dogen, but also uh, as an anthropology professor referring to uh, talking about different ages of Earth. So um, I'm very happy to have Juan Pablo here uh, to talk with us about his interesting um, research and perspectives. Thank you, Juan Pablo. Thank you, Taigen, and thank you, everyone, for joining today. Um, well, as you know, I'm from, as my Taigen mentioned, I'm from Colombia, so English is not my first language. So I will ask you to do a little bit of effort to understand maybe some, some things that I will not be able to express correctly. Um, I am here now in Argentina and now it's winter and the mountains here are covered with snow. So it's very beautiful here now. And uh, I am now in a town called uh, El Bolson, but I live in a town called Epugen. So I don't have a very good connection there. So I came here to a house of a friend to talk to you. And uh, so, well, I was born in Colombia and I lived there for 26 years. And maybe, you know, I, I want to mention that before we start to talk about the ecological crisis, Colombia is going through a hard, very, very, very hard time. A lot of violence is going on right now. And um, so I want to dedicate this meeting, this talk and or a conversation to the people in Colombia who are suffering a lot, who have, who have been suffering a lot. And, uh, and now they are suffering a lot of institutional violence, military violence. So I want to honor them and I want to honor my friends there. So uh, I want to, I want to go through a little bit of my history very, very quickly. So I was born in Colombia. I studied philosophy 
uh, and my thesis for my undergraduate was about philosophy as a way of life. So I was very interested in how philosophy was not an abstract system of thinking, but a way of life. And I was very um, influenced by two main philosophers. One is Michel Foucault, uh, which in his last books, he talks about an aesthetic of existence and and Pierre Adot. Pierre Adot is a French philosopher also who talks about philosophy, not as an abstract or system, but as a way of life. And then I felt that really connected when I started to study, to read the first books of Buddhism, to yoga and Buddhism. So I started to practice yoga first. And then when I, when I wanted to go deeper into meditation, I, I, I started to study Buddhism. And my first encounter with Buddhism was here in Argentina with a Tibetan Sangha. So I started to practice the Nondra practices, which, is, which are the preliminary practices in the Tibetan tradition. So prostrations, um, purification, mandala offerings, and Guru Yoga, what they call Guru Yoga. So I went to India at that time to deepen my practice in, and do the Nondra, which is a hard, hard, hard work. And when I came back here to Argentina, um, I wanted to integrate a little bit what, what I learned from, from the Tibetan Buddhist tradition and, and the place where I was living, no? It's South America, it's Latin America, a lot of social problems, a lot of political problems. So I wanted to do something connecting what I learned from Buddhism and what I see was the real issue or are some very important issues here as uh, politically talking and socially talking. So I started to study, I don't know if you have heard about the theology of liberation or in philosophy of liberation and theology of liberation. So I started to study a little bit of uh, some philosophers as uh, Enrique Dussel, an Argentinian philosopher, and trying to make connections between Buddhism and philosophy and theology of liberation. And, and at some point of my, of, my, of my studies, I was studying philosophy at that time, uh, doing a PhD on philosophy, starting a PhD on philosophy. I came here to Patagonia and I started to walk on the mountains of Patagonia. And I had with me this amazing and beautiful book called The Practice of the Wild and uh, La Practica de los Salvaje from Kerry Snyder. And that book, I don't know, opened something to me. And, uh, and I decided that, of course, like the political and the social situation was really important, but I wanted to focus my attention into environmental problems and how that is related to the, to the spiritual practice, especially from, to the meditation practice. And at that time, I started to uh, study with a Zen Sangha. Here it's called Viento del Sur, Wind of the South is called in English. So Viento del Sur. Uh, directed by uh, Daniel Terraño, who 
who lives there in, in California. So that's how I arrived to Zen, uh, through my interest in bringing this connection between environmentalism and uh, spiritual practice through Gary Snyder. Uh, so this is a little bit of an introduction how I arrived. No? And what, what we want to discuss or what we want to talk Today, it's, it has a big name, no? It's spiritual practice in an ecological crisis. It is a big issue. It is a big name. I think uh, some authors have talked about it. And um, so it's a big, 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 big theme, big question. And, uh, and, I, and I find that there are two main ways to approach that big question or big issue. One is a tech, it's like um, technically, I mean, how do we solve the ecological crisis? So this is one approach and it's an approach made, for example, uh, by some people from the Breakthrough Institute, for example. They try to fix the situation by geoengineering, for example, or by, I don't know, technical means to solve the situation. So that's how one, one way we can approach the ecological crisis. And the other one, and in, in which I am interested, is deep ecology. Uh, maybe you know something about deep ecology. It was a term created by Arne Nes, a Nor Norwegian, how do you call it, Norwegian, Norwegian? Norwegian philosopher, and he distinguished between a shallow approach to ecology, which I think is very related to what some of us see today as geoengineering, how we, we technically solve, I don't know, carbon capture, for example, or whatever. And the other, and his approach, or what, what he proposed is deep ecology. And and there are three, for me, three main issues or themes that we can find when we go, when we understand the, this, the ecological crisis in the frame of deep ecology. One, the first one is who we are in this ecological crisis, who, who we are. So it's anthropology, who we are as humans in this ecological crisis. So this is the first theme, and we will discuss a little bit in a moment that big theme. So who we are as humans in this ecological crisis, as a species. So that's the first. The second, it's where we are what kind of place we are now. So it's, it's the question about space or what kind of earth we are inhabiting. And the third is about temporality, what kind of time we are going through. So for me, if we, if we don't go to, to the first uh, approach, which is related to we're going to solve it through technical means, uh, the ecological crisis, but we go to the deep, um, to the deep uh, 
approach, deep ecology approach, we find these three big issues, three big themes, the human, the space, and the time. And that's, I think, how I approach to Tigan's work with, with his book about visions of the space and awakening, which is also about space and time. So who we are in this special moment that we call ecological crisis. And I will use a word here, uh, which was uh, proposed, I think, 20 years ago by Paul Crutzen, and it's the Anthropocene. Because the Anthropocene is a very interesting word because it encapsulates these three main themes, the human, space, and temporality. So that's how I want to approach this talk. And I, I hope that at the end of the talk, we, we're going to have discussion and conversation. And if, if there's anything you want to ask in between the talk, please ask the question. So I want to share screen to start. Uh, and I am, can I, can I share screen, Shinju? Okay, perfect. Let's see. I don't have the. Um, I am not allowed to to share screen. Oh yeah, yeah. Let's see if that works. So can you see it? Yes. Perfect. So this is the theme or the the name of our conversation now, spiritual crisis in the ecological crisis. And just, just for you to, to remember, three main issues, who we are in this ecological crisis, what kind of place we're living now, and what kind of time, what is our time in, in, in words of Dogen? So we are now aware that we are terraforming the earth by our desires, by our needs. And here's a, there's a beautiful documentary I, I, will, I will suggest you to, to, to see. It's called Anthropocene from a Canadian, um, Canadian documentalist. So we are terraforming the earth. What, what does it mean deeply on these three main issues, the human, space, and time. So I want to read some of, the, some of the authors that have that had come with this category or concept called the Anthropocene. So I mentioned that the first one who, who mentioned this category was Paul Crutzen. He died, I think, uh, recently, maybe two months ago. He was a uh, a Nobel Prize uh, on chemistry, I think. And, and he proposed a category to, to, to make a distinction that we are not living the same earth that our ancestor lived. I mean, since at least a thousand, uh, uh, 11,000 years ago, which uh, started the, the epoch called the Holocene which is an, an special epoch because it stabilizes 
the weather, the conditions. So it was possible, the flourishing in that epoch, in these 11,000 years of what we call the human civilization. But now, um, some scientists, Crutzen included, but also many scientists are saying, we're going on another epoch or we are coming to another epoch. So my, 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 my interest is how, how does it affect us? Yeah? So I want to read some of the authors that have come with this term. Uh, this is Naomi Oreskes. She says, to deny that global warming is, is real is precisely to deny that humans have become geological agents. And that's the first question I was bringing forth. Who we are? We are, as humans, no? We are geological agents. According to Naomi Oresk, but also, for example, to Dipesh Chakravarti, changing the most basic physical processes of the Earth. For centuries, scientists thought that Earth, Earth processes were so large and powerful that nothing we could do could change them. This was a basic tenet of geological science. And this is very important for time, that human chronologies were insignificant compared with the vastness of geological time, that human activities were insignificant compared with the force of geological processes. And once they were, but not more, there are now so many of us cutting down so many trees and burning so many billions of tons of fossil fuels that we have indeed become geological agents. We have changed the chemistry of our atmosphere, causing sea level to rise, ice to melt, and climate to change. There is no reason to think otherwise. So it's very direct, no? The, the quote from Naomi Reskes. And, and this is the first issue I wanted to bring. We have become, according to the Anthropocene and some authors on the Anthropocene, human activities. And we will, we will nuance this in, um, in the next slide, but human activities have become geologically important. So process, a geological process. And it's the first time they say that in the earth and a species have this, uh, how do you call it? Have this quality, have this power to change the processes of the earth system. So humans as a collective force become a geological agent. We're living, and this is concerning space, we're living different conditions. The planet is changing and currently going through a deep modification we are living, as I was telling you, the Holocene. So, so the first question that arises now, what, who, what kind of human? Because this is the first critique that we can make to the concept of the Anthropocene. If we generalize the Anthropocene, we, we, we will say that everyone is responsible equally and that's something that, uh, for example, indigenous populations or indig indigenous scholars are, are rising up. It is not the same um, 
how do you say it, it is not the same we have to distribute responsibilities differentiate between i don't know uh, what an indigenous population contributed to the climate change from united states england or all industrialized countries so the first critique to anthropocene was it's 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 coming from the social sciences and it's basically they say what do we mean by anthropos who is that anthropos who is that human that it's making this mess <laughs> that is making this ecological crisis so this is the the question again about humanity what kind of configuration of human did or is responsible of the ecological crisis and when did it started and these two questions are very related when did it started and what kind of humanity it's more responsible from for for the anthropocene so there are basically five five um five approaches to this question and i will mention them for you to know a little bit about the more theoretical issues on the anthropocene so there's the early anthropocene thesis and this is done by or it's Rudiman, which is, uh, I think, uh, he's a geographer or a paleontologist. So he says basically that the Neolithic Revolution caused a massive change in the conditions of the Earth, basically because there was an extinction of the megafauna, for example, the mammoths and all these big, huge mammals, and, but also by the use of fires that created, for example, the savannas. So, but the, the question, the, the fact with this thesis is that uh, it was the, the, the capacity of, of, of the early humans on the Holocene was not that powerful to change the processes of the Earth system. Of course, they changed in some way the ecological niches that. Uh, where they were living, but they didn't change the earth system. And we will talk a little bit about the earth system in a few moments. So it is, it is a provocative thesis, but I, I don't know. I, I, I'm not agree with this thesis. The other one also is a provoca provocative thesis. It's called the Orbis Pike. This is from two ge geographers, Simon Lewis and Mark Maslin, I, Mark Williams is not, is Mark Maslin. And uh, they saw that there was a drop in the CO2 in the ice core. And they related that uh, in the age of 1610 to the, to the death, or the assassination, the death of the 90% of the indigenous population in the Americas uh, with the arriving or the invasion of the Europeans. So this, this uh, big event, this, how we should call it invasion, no? um, is responsible for the death of 90% of the people of, of the indigenous populations. And it caused uh, the forest to grow. So there was more CO2 uh, or carbon capture 
So there was a drop inscribing the ice cores that signals that event. So they say this is the first, um, we, can, we can see that it's the first event that caused a big dramatic change in the, in the composition of the atmosphere. And it's related to, the, to what they call the, the conquest of the Americas. So, and I think it's, it's very good to have this approach in mind because I think the Anthropocene is very related to colonialism. So let's have that for the time. The other, the other thesis is uh, from the, from, it's called the Capitalocene or Capitalocene, yeah. It's Jason Moore, Andreas Mao, and they call, and they, and they talk that it is not human that made this mess. It's capitalism, you know, it's, and they, they signal the 16th century also as, uh, that created the conditions for the globalization that made possible all these uh, interchange of materials, but also the coming from different species. So really the 16th century created uh, the um, fluxes, the, the, the flows that change dramatically the air. Uh, the other one that I didn't mention here in this slide, it's, uh, the beginning of the industrial revolution, it was proposed by, by, by Crutzen and by Eugene Stormer. And in the, in, and it was the first thesis of the Anthropocene. So Eugene Stormer and, and, and Paul Crutzen say that, that we should, we should see the beginning of the industrial revolution as the beginning. So Anthropocene started with the industrial revolution, with the heat engine by Watts in the 18th century. And, and the, the, the most, uh, how do you say, the most uh, probable date for the Anthropocene uh, is what they call the Great Acceleration. The Great Acceleration, uh, it's 1950s. Uh, and they say, from the 1950 after the, the Second World War, you can see a dramatic change in the uses of land, in the uses of fresh water. In the, of course, you can see after the nuclear bombs, you can see radioisotopos all over the atmosphere. So there is a, um, a mark, there is a mark that you can see all over the world on how humans have impacted the atmospheres, the soils, etc. So most of the scientists, but also some, uh, some social, social scientists are using the beginning of the Anthropocene uh, from the 1950s and the Great Acceleration. If you want to know or you want to... If you want to know more about these uh, dates and all these different names that have come, uh, that have uh, emerged, uh, I really recommend this book that I, that I put here, The Chalk of the Anthropocene. And it's a great book by two French authors, French scholars, uh, a critical book of the Anthropocene, but I, I really liked it. So, so I, will, I will suggest you to read that if you're interested. Us. So we're coming back to that. 
So what kind of human, no? What configuration of human? And when did it start? That's the first, that covers our first, um, how do you say, our first uh, field of conversation. And, and maybe we can discuss that later. What, what do you see? How do you feel? What, what, we, what is more appropriate and how will be more appropriate to think the Anthropocene if you have some other ideas? So another, so this is the first, uh, the first, the first thing, who we are as humans and when it started. It's connected to how, do, how we conceive ourselves and time. And the, other, and the other issue that comes up when we think about time in the Anthropocene is extinction. So I don't know if you have heard this word, we are coming to the six max extinction. And it's a possibility. So we read uh, here, anthropogenic global climate change is now emerging as what may become the most significant extinction driver of all time amplifying the already potent mix of anthropogenic pressures behind what is increasingly called Earth's six max extinction. Ecologists, Turpin, paleontologists, Tony Barnowski, and others have demonstrated that current extinction rates for vertebrates estimated in extinctions per million species per year are now at least 10 and potentially up to a thousand times higher than the historical baseline and have increased dramatically in recent centuries. So, of course, extinction, it's a normal process for the Earth, but the rate of extinction that human activities are bringing to so many species are not natural at all. So here's a photo from Chris Jordan. Chris Jordan has this amazing work on albatross and, and how our activities or consume has impacted these species, fly species. And I took and, and I really recommend a, a beautiful book I'm going to read from him. It's called Flightways. And because we can approach extinction and we can approach the Anthropocene by very technical numbers or technical issues or whatever. But what Tom Van Doren does in Flightways, it's really sad and beautiful and amazing because he narrates or he, his narrative is about histories of birds that are in the edge of extinction. So he has this um, how do you call it? Amazing way to show you what is extinction, not by rates, not by, I don't know, graphs, but by stories. And I think we need more of this when, when we approach uh, the ecological crisis, stories that tell us that we can relate emotionally. So what does he say about extinction and what is lost? And extinction, of course, is the end of times for a species, for ourselves, for many forms of life. So it's related to time. 
but also is related to who we are. So what does he say? He says, millions of years before anything like the human species appear on, this, on the scene, albatrosses were already soaring, dancing, and fishing across this great blue planet. We often do not appreciate and perhaps we cannot fully grasp the immensity of this intergenerational work. He's, he, he, he understands species as intergenerational work. So species is not a, pont, uh, a point in time. It has a dance time, a timing. The skill, commitment, cooperation and hard work alongside serendipity that are required in each generation to carry the species through. It is with recognition of this embodied intergenerational achievement that I understand species as flightways. This understanding is possible only since Darwin, central to this mode of thought that evolutionary theory opened up is the transition from an understanding of a species as fixed and eternal kind to that of something more akin to a historical lineage stretch between a beginning and an inevitable end. In this context, a species must be understood as something like a line of movement through evolutionary time, but it is much more than an empty trajectory. So how do we understand extinction when we understand a species as a line of time? It is not just one fixed point death uh, he calls about he, he 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 talks about the double death because of course a species died but all the world that has come from before died also so a way of life died so this is kind of um what i want to bring from from how we ourselves understand as humans how do we understand temporality, time? And now I want to bring the third theme. What do we call the world? So, you know, that koan no? from, from the central Asian, what do we call a world? How do we understand the place we are sitting right now? So... For for the modern, uh, of course, these categories are very big, but for the sake of the conversation, I will use them. The modern idea of place or, or environment, it's something that is mechanic, it's mechanistic, and something that is kind of the background to our human drama. So the modern idea of, environment or the modern modern idea if you if you if you if you give this con to a modern maybe they will say it's a mechanistic world and it's the background for all our activities and it's infinite we can take whatever we want from them we can take whatever we want from the Americas, we can take whatever, whatever we want from the soil. So it will not be depleted by your activities because it's mechanic, it's the background of our activities, and it has, and it's, this is very important, it has no agency at all. So birds, as René Descartes 
remembers us are just machines, you know, and if they scream, it's like when a machine is damaged. So this is the, of course, we can go deeper and there are a lot of studies who, who take this issue, but we can, we can, we have this idea and we, we were raised with this idea that the environment, it's, uh, the, 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 even the word environment, what surrounds us, but who we, in what way we are related to that environment. So it is the place, it, it is us, no? But this is how we understand it. But the modern idea of environment, it, it is kind of the base to all these extraction and irrespectful ways on how we relate to the earth. So uh, science has come with this idea of the earth systems. I think since, at least since Lovelock, I, do you know, you know, maybe the, the Gaia thesis and Lovelock was a scientist that uh, he, he used to work for the NASA also with James Hansen, or Jim Hansen, I, I remember his first name, but Hansen. <laughs> and uh, and they, they came up with this idea that we are not dealing with that dead mechanic world. You know? So they started to create a, this new field called the Earth System Sciences. Of course, Lovelock has his Gaia thesis or Gaia hypothesis, but all the earth system scientists are very related to the first uh, thesis by Lovelock. So syn synthesizing what is the earth system is processes of the earth that are interrelating with each other. And this is the Gaia thesis, life from microorganisms to all the organisms of the earth have played a dramatic role in the formation of the atmosphere or whatever, or the conditions of livability in this world. And now human activities have become part of this process. Uh, this is um, a very interesting scientist called Johannes Rockström. And he, it has, they, they have an article, uh, it was written, I think in 2009, and it's called uh, a safe operating space for humanity, and I and I'm very uh, I, I I am working on that article, but I'm working on that idea that the Earth has planetary boundaries and has tipping points, and if if we cross that threshold, we are uh, in serious risk. So, what? Uh, that article specifically is about those thresholds, those tipping points or those boundaries that we should recognize. No? So if, again, it is not an infinite earth where we can take whatever we want. It is a very, very sensitive earth that we have to understand how we should relate. And that the indigenous population, most of the indigenous populations have, of course, a knowledge that modern ideas didn't, I don't, I don't know how to say it, didn't respect at least. So what Rockstrom says about, and all the authors of this 
article says about the Earth system. The Earth system is defined as the integrated biophysical and socioeconomic processes and interactions among the atmosphere, the hydrosphere, the cryosphere, the biosphere, the geosphere, and the anthroposphere in both spatial, from local to global, and temporal scales, which determine the environmental state of the planet within its current position in the universe. Thus, humans and their activities are fully part of the Earth system, interacting with other components. So we have this idea now in, this, in, the, in, in the climate sciences and the Earth system sciences that we are not dealing anymore with a mechanistic world. It's a system that is sensitive, that is integrated and interrelated and where we are part of. And this is planetary boundaries. Uh, so here we have these different fundamental processes for the, for the functioning of the Earth system. So biosphere integrity is bi biodiversity, climate change, novel entities is pollution, stratospheric ozone depletion, atmospheric aerosol, loading, ocean acidification, biochemical flows is more mostly nitrogenous and phosphates, freshwater use and land system change. And what, what these scientists say is that we have crossed and we, are, we have crossed four of these processes, which are biosphere integrity, uh, the biogeochemical bio flows, climate change, and land use change, which is another word for deforestation. No, it's like, um, I don't know if you have, I don't know the word in English, but it's an euphemism. <laughs> Do you call euphemism? It's kind of land system change. Of course, it's a change when a forest uh, change from um, forest to agriculture, but also it's uh, deforestation. It's called it's another name for deforestation. So those four boundaries have been crossed by humanity. So we are living in a very dangerous situation. So that's what I wanted to. Um, to share with you, to start a conversation ar around these three big issues, the human, the time, and the space. And to finish and to start a conversation, I wanna, I wanna reflect and I want you, us, to reflect on how our practice can be actualized. No? This, this idea of how we actualize our practice is very dear to me how we actualize or practice in the midst of these changes or, or on these conditions. So I will propose four points and I will open the discussion after that. Uh, so for me, so you, you remember I was talking about the great acceleration, no? And, and uh, again, and, and before I go, I go with these points, I want to mention that I think actualizing the practice, I think, is from Dogen. But also, we must think actualizing the practice, it's 
related to respond appropriately. And we have also this one now. So how do we respond to these conditions? How we, act, we actualize or practice? So here are my four points. And after that, I want you to, to share your thoughts and open up the conversation. So the first, of course, practice brings us to a more deaccelerate kind of experience. No? I wasn't just practicing before and I was observing all my anxiety before my talk and no? and just to pause and deaccelerate because if if and we, we can come back to what we we're saying about the great acceleration if if what created the anthropocene it's a it's a movement that it's called the great acceleration i mean it's um it's important for us if we want to if we want to reduce the impact of the anthropocene to deaccelerate and deaccelerate Deaccelerate, I mean, our ways of consumption. The other day we were talking with a, with a Hindu scholar, Edwin Bryant, and he was talking about climate change and consumerism. And all the focus of his talk was about desires and how the Gita, uh, the Bhagavad Gita, um, teaches us to control in some way our desires and to control or consume. And I think it's, it's very important, but also for, for, the, for climate change, for the ecological crisis, we should read that on a geopolitical frame because it's not the same to consume in the global north than in the global south. It's not the same, it's not the same level of consuming, it's not the same level of, uh, I don't know, uh, impact or footprints. So that also have to be, has to be, I don't know how to say it, matizado, um, nuance, you know. Uh, we should understand that in the global north, you, you should make a graded effort to reduce in order for us here in the global south not to be pressured to have, I don't know, uh, extractivist politics or whatever. I, I mean, extractivism and the consumer of the north are totally interrelated. So how do we do to reduce desires and consumerism? Of course, it's an individual choice, but also has geopolitical implications so we should understand this deacceleration or or some some theories today call degrowth of course degrowth but i mean there's people here dying of hunger in the global south so we should have these issues in mind when we talk about degrowth or whatever or deacceleration even deacceleration but or practice um, to come back to our practice i think it's a precious opportunity to slow down, yeah? to slow down. And 
this is what I was telling before, the skesis of desire. Skesis is the Greek word for tapas, for effort, for, for discipline of desires. So, of course, we should come. I think our practice teaches us not to follow all our desires. And for me, at least. And uh, so we should see which desires are in conformity with a more flourishing world and which we should, I don't know, reject or um, etc. So this is, this is two aspects that are related to our, specifically to our pract- individual practice, not just individual, but yes, like our practice, seed practice, whatever. But this third is relational. I, here we have to put an L. Relational ontology. Of course, we talk a lot about interdependence, guy, but this word interdependence, how we should understand it, for example, with air system science, with Gaia. There are some works, for example, Joanna Macy's work, you know, in systems theory and and Buddhism, I think it was his her PhD dissertation, no? System System Theory and Buddhism, I think it's called. But how do we how do we go from an individualist atomist ontology? Ontology is in a word in, in philosophy to for the things that exist. So in the mechanistic universe or the modern ontology, you, you have different atoms, you know, neoliberalism is an expression of that. And how do we transform or how do we do a great turning, as Joanna Macy says, from that kind of ontology to a relational ontology where all these processes are interconnected? And the fourth one is something I was thinking yesterday. It's how do we understand this big concept in Buddhism, emptiness, or concept experience, emptiness? Because sometimes we think, or at least me, myself, that emptiness is the denial of personhood. You know, there is not... Uh, there is not any svavava in Sanskrit, no? There is no intrinsic identity. So that's how we understand emptiness. But what if, of course, it's a process where we deny this essentialism that we have ingrained in our minds and our bodies, but also how how do we, or at least this is my idea. How do we uh, integrate this idea that everything has a personhood? Everything, it's alive and it's alive and it has a personhood in a non-hierarchical way. So how do, maybe emptiness could be that, could be the denial of intrinsic identity, but also could be the amplifying movement that we do to extend personhood to all entities 
in the world. So this go against this go this confronts the modern idea that there is no agency at all in the universe except humanity. And I think that's enough for now. Um, uh, I don't know if you have any reactions or whatever you want to share. It's open now, the conversation. Thank you so much, Juan Pablo. Uh, lots of uh, material to consider. Uh, and lots and, a, and a, a different, a little bit of a different way of talking about it than maybe Buddhism has, but it's very much related. So anybody who has any comments, questions, thoughts, you can raise your hand, or if you're not visible, go to the participants at the bottom, and you can, uh, where it says raise hand, you can click on that. And maybe uh, Xingyu, you can help call on people. I will, I will, um, maybe I would like to, because this is a work in progress, of course. This is something that I'm, I've been thinking, and I, I, I have always liked to think in hybrids, you know, in relational terms. So how we bring Buddhism to the time we're living in the ecological crisis. So I don't know, if, what do you think about, of course, about everything, but specifically about those four points do you have more you don't see any relationship with that to the, how you understand the ecological crisis that that would be very useful for me and you can open up the conversation laurel uh good morning one pablo thank you so much for your talk in the middle of your talk, a big picture fell off my wall. I think it was all the energy coming from your um, <laughs> from your words and your and your ideas. Um, uh, I think there's so much. Uh, the reason no one jumped right in is there's so much to think about. Of course, I would just say um, what I. My approach to this connection between our, our practice and um, connecting with the rest of the world is to um, is to make part of our practice a lot of direct experience in nature. To put yourself outside in the winter, in the summer, in the spring, in the fall, and be quiet and uh, pay attention to the rest of life on earth. Um, thank you for that recommendation of the book about birds. I am a very serious bird student and I'll have a recommendation called A World on the Wing by Scott uh, Widensall. He talks about migration and when you and when you understand even the tiniest bit about how other creatures use the earth as one place, they, they they travel thousands of miles multiple times a year because they see it as one. It is one to them, not 
little patches and disconnected things the way our brains have have made it. Anyway, I'm going to stop chattering now, but I, I do think part of our practice to build any kind of wisdom is to just have any kind of intimacy we can forge by being out there with this stuff and not just in our heads on our cushions. I'm not saying that's not important too, but um, uh, listen and smell and watch and feel (laughs) the rest of it, not just humans. And thank you. Your talk is just wonderful. I, I think it should be like an eight-week course, not a 60-minute talk. So thank you. Oh, and thank you also for um, mentioning Gary Snyder. I, I've given many talks here, and I've never given a talk that I haven't um, <laughs> made a commercial announcement about Gary Snyder's writing, which I find so uh, valuable. And I, and I was remembering, thank you, Laurel. I was remembering this book of um, I don't I don't remember his name. It's called The Abstract Wild. Have you read it? The Abstract Wild. I think he's a professor in the University of Arizona, something like that. I don't know. I don't remember. But his point is very, very. It was very. I don't know. It was very important for me at some point, and. And and we and because he he says we need that kind of intimacy. We need that kind of, of so his critique to the environmentalism. Uh, it, it was written, I, I think, twenty years ago. It was because he 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 saw there was no real connection with the with the wild, you know, with the with, with nature or whatever we want to call it. But um, I remember it was, and that's. One of the reasons I came to to Patagonia to live, I was living in Buenos Aires, which is a big city, and I came to Patagonia to live uh, uh, just before the pandemic. Uh, and it's for me, it's fundamental just to walk and to see other beings, and because really for me, uh, it's part of the practice that I do. Now it's winter; I, I don't do it so often, but to be in front of a tree, you know, a cypress tree. I have a big cypress tree in, in the back, in the backyard. And to sit in front of a tree and, 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 to, and to bow in front of a tree and to, I don't know, for me, it's really, really important, really important for my practice, for, for my sensibility. I think another, another, another inspiring figure for my it's David Abram, you know David Abram, right? Yeah, and 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 he says something like, when you go to walk on the forest, just 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 experiment with this idea that everything is watching you and everything is hearing you, and you are not related to things. You're related in a different way with an. Levinas will call it an alterity. There is an alterity there. There is no an I-it relationship, as Martin Buer says. It's I-you relationship. So that's for me, it's really important.
So thank yeah, you. I think when you. we walk in the woods, all the other creatures are saying, who is that big, loud, smelly thing coming through? <laughs> we're, we're very disruptive. Totally, totally. Uh, I think uh, Asian is next. And then Paul Disco. Thank you. I thank you, Juan Pablo. I want to echo that this was a very, very thought-provoking talk. And if you ever um, would make your slides available, that would be really helpful yeah. maybe for me and, and others of us. Um, I, and, and like um, Laurel, I have a hard time knowing where to start, but, but I wanted to, um, I wanted to share how this talk impacts me in my life as a psychologist and the, and the, the idea of the Anthropocene was really a new one for me, um, just to, to label it that way, but also really important. Um, you know, we and thinking about it from the human aspect um, as well as the Buddhist aspect, we, we don't know what we are, you know, humans, and we don't recognize that we are interdependent. And that's why we practice. You know, that's one of the things that we, we gain from practice. It's also one of the things that I try to help people do as a psychologist so that they can um, you know, recover from, from the things that are troubling them. Um, and I think it's our, our, our time or, you know, especially maybe American culture really encourages us not to take our lives seriously and not to take ourselves seriously and to just see ourselves as consumers, um, consuming things. And, Hmm just working on our own entertainment and um and and we and it and it has um it, it manifests in so many different ways with our health with our economy with our you know culture and inequity and then and then right down to the way that we are impacting our planet and so to me the root cause of this is very, very related to our Buddhist practice, which is helping people to wake up and um, take their lives seriously and recognize all the ways in which we are interdependent and um, and what, you know, really brings us joy as compared to sort of momentary entertainment. Um, and then finding ways to help others to see that, you know, to help others to, to feel that joy of recognizing our connections and, and, and the ways in which that is very healing. And I think that that is part of what helps heal the planet. It's, um, it's depressing, though, to when I think about it on, you know, the global scale that it is, it, it's, you know, increasingly impacting. And so the, the Anthropocene, I think for me, was sort of like, oh no, wow, this is, yeah, this is really a thing. <laughs> that's, that's depressing. But, um, but so that just makes it more, more clear all the time that we need to help people wake up. I just want to, I'm trying not to go off on any tangents here, but I will say that, you know, I, I was really struck one time by a teenager that I was working with that I was talking to who was telling me that they 
play video games because it helps them pass the time. And I just wanted to say, and I did say, the time until what? What? You know, you could do anything you want to with your life. Why? Why are you just waiting to pass time? So, um, so you know, let's do what let's do things with our lives. Thank you, thank you, Nancy. And um, it remind me of uh, I really like one French author called Bruno Latour. Have you read it? No. Bruno Latour. Uh, Bruno Latour. He's a thinker, philosopher, and he has this book on Gaia and he takes this idea from another French philosopher called Michel Serret and he says that our civilization is one that is characterized by I don't know if that were existing in if this were existing in English negligence yes is is that that exists okay negligencia because we neglect that's our characteristic we neglect peoples, we neglect customs, we neglect so many things, no? We neglect other ways of life. And it's, of <laughs> course, it's related to we don't pay attention. Yeah. We don't pay attention to anything. So I think that's one way to, to understand or practice in our world. We, we need to come out from this negligence <laughs> state where we are, I don't know, Uh, so yeah and, and and it has psychological impacts you know yeah so so yeah thank you thank you for sharing a lot to think about here mm. uh thank you very much uh juan pablo it was a wonderful clear exposition of the situation that we are in And I would like to speak to your question of emptiness to start mm. with. And my understanding of the Buddhist relationship of emptiness in terms of personal, personal, personal interrelationships inter is that the analogy that I've always thought of is we are all pumpkins growing on the single vine. So mm. we are both individual and collective simultaneously, not mm. one or the other. And that uh, we each have our own karmic history, but we're all We're all part of the same plant, um, nurtured by the same root. Uh, anyway, that's that. That's it's always a tricky problem to people fall off the off the table on either either one side or the other on that question of being into, too individualistic or too much just giving in to the to the group. Which which brings me to the second point, where I think we have to admit that we are all. Addicts, addicts to consumerism. We we say we say consumerism as if it's some ugly thing and that out there somewhere that somebody else is doing. But we we are we are the consumers. We have to admit, just like an alcoholic says, "I am an alcoholic," even if they're not drinking. We have to say we are consumers. We we are part of the we are part, we are the problem ourselves. We met the enemy and it's us. But that we are consumers, and so. How do we, we, I think we have to acknowledge that first. I mean, right now I'm watching you on this, on this piece of machinery here that's made out of hydrocarbons mined from the, mined from the center of the earth and, and, and uh, rare metals and, and that are also dug in great holes in the ground and displacing many, many plants and animals. Uh, 
I would not be able to be see. I'd not be able to talk to you or see you if that if that if those minerals that that hole hadn't been dug in the ground or 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 that all those hydrocarbons pumped out of the center of the earth. So we we are all participants in this in this consumerism, and and I think that's something for us to at least acknowledge to ourselves. And then the second question I was when you first started out, you said you were a student of. Uh, philosophy as a way of life and I thought wow that's wonderful that's really that's really a wonderful way of looking at it um, and I never really most philosophers are are philosophy as a way of thinking but you were to study it as a way of life which I think is just a wonderful way of looking at it and I think we need to work on what what Buddhism as a way of life is we we're we're very much opposed to coming up with ideas about we should do this or we should do that because whatever we say, it's not quite right, and, it, and it's all situational. But what is what is what 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 is the way of life of someone that is studying the Buddha way? I think that's an important question for us all to think about, and it has a lot to do with politics as well. Of course, it's a really, really, it's a political question. It's a political question. We know. I think you living in the part of the world that you've been living in, you know, a lot of indigenous people that live quite quite cleanly on the earth without creating any mess or waste or or disturbance um, in a simple life. I think my, certainly my experience in Japan was a very, very full life that required no outside inputs. But uh, the, the emphasis now is not on that. The emphasis now is globalized, globalization and, and people racing back and forth and, and, and having more and more material objects in their life. Um, anyway, that's that's the question I struggle with. What what does it mean? What is a Buddhist way of life? And uh, I would like to hear anything you have to say on that subject. Thank you Thank very you, much. Paul. Thank you. Um, I can I can start by saying how this idea came to me and. It was kind of a disillusion with philosophy because I read this, specifically these two authors, Pierre Adot and Michel Foucault. And Pierre Adot, his main thesis is that, as you were saying, for ancient philosophy, philosophy was not an abstract system. Philosophy was integrated into a way of life with a spiritual exercise. And you can see spiritual exercises. You can see that, for example, in Marcos Aurelius, a Stoic from, from, from Roman, from, from the Stoic school of philosophy. And his main book, or what he wrote, it's called Meditations. So his spiritual exercise was to write to remind him what he wanted how he wanted to live. And uh, so it was a process of remembering on Smriti, no? if, if we can put it in, in Buddhist terms of mindfulness about how, how he wanted to become. Uh, so if you read the meditations of Marcus Aurelius, it's, uh, it's, it, it has a lot of points in common with what I think is Buddhism. What, what, why I was interested in Buddhism, because I felt and I still feel that that kind 
of relation between philosophy and life is there. You know, we have it. We have it in meditation. We have it in the precept. We have it in, in, in how we understand the world. Of course, there are scholars and academic uh, people who are just interested in Buddhism as a system of thought. But in our process, I think in the Western Sanghas, it's that, that, that kind of linking, it's, it's there. You know, it's there. And that's how I approach Buddhism because, for example, one, one anecdote, I was taking this class in my university with, with a, um, a, a, my professor, French professor from, and he was teaching about, um, Epictetus. No, Epictetus, it's a Stoic philosopher. And he was talking specifically about the ascesis of desire how we shall control desires. Ah, he was an expert on Stoics and Greek philosophy, but specifically Aristotle and Stoics. <laughs> and he couldn't stop smoking, you know, in the classroom. So he, he was smoking all the time. And I was like, this is kind of such a cognitive disorder. You have to make a cognitive dissonance to speak about the ascesis of desire and not be able just to hold on to one hour and a half to stop smoking for your students. So I don't know. That's the disconnection that you see in in the scholars in in the West. I think you know. Um, so I think Buddhism has that relationship, and and I think the practice, the 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 praxis, you know, what we call the praxis, no, the practice. It's so important for that because it actualizes a vision. It actualizes, um, um, it refines our desires. It refines our uh, relationship with ourselves. And you know that Socrates and all this, the, the Greek, has this slogan, epimelea hetu, no? to know yourself, to know yourself. And, but how do you do it? It's it's the question in Western philosophy. How do you do it? And you cannot find the tapas, or tapas is a word in in, in Hindu, in, in yoga. You you don't find the practices to know yourself. You find the books, you find the letters, but you don't find the, the practices. So that was very important for me, and I found it in in yoga, in yoga some part, and in Buddhism. Um. But yeah, it, it's it, it's a beautiful approach. What Pierre Adot does, Pierre H A D O T Adot, uh, and I think there's a professor in the University of Chicago, Arnold Davidson. I think he he recovers a lot of Adot's ideas, and and there's also I, I was remembering there's another. Uh, scholar from Buddhism, uh, Theravada Buddhism, Stephen Collins, and he his last book, it's a connection between Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism, and um, philosophy as a way of life uh, as Adot speaks or writes. So maybe it's something to explore. Stephen Collins died, I think, a year ago, something like that.
Another thing that I, I was, I have this book here, I was reading the other day, this is called The Falling Sky, because Nancy was talking about, and The Falling Sky is a very interesting book. It's a book from a shaman. It's an, kind of an autobiography of Dabiko Penawa. It's an indigenous from the Yanomami people on Brazil. And it's very interesting because it's beautiful, but also it's very interesting because anthropologists always, of course, they, they do what they can with their background, <laughs> with their ideas, with their, I don't know, structures. But this is a book on how David Copenawa sees climate change. So it is not a secular vision, for example, of climate change or the Anthropocene, but it's an indigenous vision on how the white humans, what, what he calls the people of the merchandise, he calls the white people the people of the merchandise, which is, I think it's a great concept. The people of the merchandise. <laughs> so very related to what Paul you you were saying. No, we are addicted to consuming, and and the first part is to admit it. No, the first the first step is to admit it that we are we are addicted, and it will be a very big issue here in the south because the way economies function for example argentina argentina is a great example and this is the paradox where we are when we speak mm -hmm. about uh the conundrum when we speak about ecological issues and the political issues because argentina has a strong state you know it's kind of a kind of a welfare state with a lot of issues of course with a lot of corruption but you have some protection, you have education, you have a healthcare system. Uh, it comes from a history of kind of uh, not socialist, but more to the left uh, governments. Uh, it's called peronismo. I don't know if you heard the word. It's very strong here, peron. You know, Eva Peron, you know? Yeah, kind of. So... There was a social security, but now that social security now in this moment, how is it sustained? By extractivism, export of much minerals, materials, whatever, and agrobusiness. It's soy, mostly soy, mostly soy for biodiesel, for biofuels, and, uh, and for the... Um, for the um, food of the cows. So you are in, we are in a very difficult position because of course we don't want extractivism, but we want to keep all these security conditions. So how do we, how do we reconcile all these two trends, these two, it's, a, it's for me, it's a koan. It's a koan right now in the ecological uh, movement. Because, of course, we don't want extractivism, but 
how, what do we do with the state that it's covering with the extractivism, with agribusiness, the kind of relative well-being, we cannot say total well-being, but relative well-being of people. And that's something we have to think very deeply. And I think it's uh, it's related to, to Paul. Uh, we're saying we're here with these gadgets. You know, I have a Mac here. I have a cell phone here. And this is extractivism. And we are in that situation. It's kind of like, you know, Donna Haraway is a great philosopher, anthropologist, whatever. And she, she speaks about staying with the trouble. We are in a trouble. We are in a trouble. We, we, we need to stay in the trouble. Not to, not to re reject the trouble, which is what I think New Age spirituality does. Reject the trouble. Now everything is perfect and we live in a wonderful world. But uh, not to be, I don't know, cynics with the trouble. And nothing, nothing, there's nothing we can do. So we, we need to stay with the trouble and think the trouble. That's my approach, I think, uh, at least. Anyway, thank you so much for for your for your presence and your questions and your and I and and thank you for uh, I want to mention no thank you for for the generosity of your sangha of our sangha uh, because yeah to have this place open uh, I when when I first contacted Taigen. Uh, I didn't know that I was going to start to, to a relationship with him and with this space. So to have an open space. And, and I was telling the other day, Taigen, that I think it's very generous from your part to listen to someone who comes from the South, because usually we as Buddhists, we always look at the North, you know, uh, Even even if, if there is Tibetan teachers or Zen teachers from Japan, but they teach mostly in the north, and then they maybe come back to the south. <laughs> maybe they come back to the south. So all the books that we have read are first written in English. So we 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 did a big effort to to bring, for example, I don't know, Dharma Buddhism to to the south, and we are doing a great effort, but. Uh, But, but the invitation from Taigen for me, coming from the South, not having wonderful English to, to talk and speak and, and share my vision and perspective, I think it's very generous. So thank you so much. And, and thank you, I, I think. Um, thank, thank you, Juan Pablo, um, very much. Uh, you've given us so much to work with, uh, and yes, to stay engaged. Uh, I, we have some time. If, if there's anybody else who has a, you know, a comment or a question or two, uh, I think we could, we could go a little long. So I don't know if um, any of you have some question for Juan Pablo or, or, or other comment. And David Ray, uh, a philosopher here, is there, are you living your philosophy, David? I, I'm sure that I am not living my, my philosophy. Thank, thank you for that. Juan Pablo, thank you so much for that talk and for telling us about your, your journey. No, I'm, I'm just, I'm, 
I'm thinking about the, 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 the issue of cognitive dissonance and how, how, how maybe how, how seemingly impossible it is to, to reconcile living and, 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 and principles. Um, I teach some of the philosophers you're talking about and students get very angry at Seneca, for example, and, and they say, well, he, Seneca saw that all human beings were related, yet he owns slaves and talks about it. Why did he never see that slavery was bad? I'm like, well, Epictetus didn't see it either, and he had been a slave. Um, and it makes me ask the question, what, what else am I blind to? What, what, else am, am I, what else am I doing addictively that I, that I only gradually become, become aware of? Um, but really, I just, I just want to say thank you. I'm, I'm going to have to bow out in a moment to, to get ready to, to go and, and spend some time sewing my rakusu this afternoon. But this was a wonderful talk. I really, really appreciate very much. Thank you, David. Yeah, it's like the, that that uh, phrase from Dogen. I don't know if that that's exactly the words that he used, but when you go deeper, you find that there is more darkness. Something like that. Do you remember, Tygen? That phrase about. I'm not sure which phrase, but I understand the meaning. Yeah. <laughs> that, that uh, you know, in one way. The more we know the Dharma, the more we know how we are. I don't know. Oh, when, when Dharma fills your body and mind, you realize something is missing. Yes, it is. We are. <laughs> we are missing. Missing in action, and, and we need to stay missing in action. And. and be present in missing in action. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, one, one more comment or question, if anyone has any thoughts or reflections or just comments for Juan Pablo uh, in the middle of this wonderful, rich talk. There's a number of philosophers here, maybe informally, but... Uh, By the way, I am I am more a philosopher than an anthropologist. I work with some some anthropologists here in in, in Argentina, and they do field work mostly in the north of Argentina. Uh, and I am related to the Mapuche people. And uh, there there's something I want to say about about it uh, because Paul was saying that. Uh, something about the, the, the simple life of the indigenous people. And I think that's correct. And uh, there's also a process here of, uh, there was a process of colonization, of course, and there has been an abandonment. I think this, this word politics of abandonment, it's really precise no? for what indigenous population has to deal with. Uh, so you have you have very rough conditions, even though, yeah, there is an a more simple life, not not some such a foot a footprint for I don't know uh, whatever consume or whatever. But there is also an abandonment of these populations that they were at at least in Argentina, for example, the Mapuche people, which are the populations from the south, uh, from from the 
from the south where I live, no? Because in Tierra de Fuego, uh, there were other populations. Uh, you know, Tierra de Fuego, deep down in the south, in the point of South America. Uh, the Selkman were the population, the indigenous population there, and, and the Onas and the Selkman. But here, the Mapuche people, they were, th there was a process of genocide just 200 years ago, maybe less, uh, in, in, the, in the middle of the 19th century. So the, the frontier, the borders of the white or the supposed white state were just, at, at they advanced in 1850. It was not with the Spanish. The Spanish didn't, couldn't, um, they, they tried to, to, I don't know, to, to exterminate the Mapuche, but they couldn't because they were really, really, really hard uh, warriors. Um, but in the 1850s, 1860s, there is something that call, that was called the desert campaign, the Campaña del Desierto here. It is the advancement of the border from the white state trying to bring all this Patagonia land to, to central power. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's very interesting or very sad how they describe it. it's a desert campaign. There's nothing in the desert. So this idea of the desert, it's also related how all the um, central people, white people saw what was there. There was no one. There was not anyone. And we could just advance. Of course, there were people and they have to be subjugated, you know. Uh, but in, in the, the question that, that or the, the, the intervention that David was bringing up, how do we, what are the things are, we are not looking? Here in Argentina, it's very, it's very clear. There was a, a genocide from the indigenous population just 150 years ago, maybe. And um, anyway, I, I just wanted to bring that up because this is part where we're living I, I'm living now. <laughs> this is also true in North America. Mm -hmm. the, the people of the merchandise, as uh, you so interestingly put it, uh, in the 1870s and 1880s, in, mm. in, in the northern the prairies. And the it was the same time. The, the, the same time. The, the, yeah, the same time. It was down south. And it was to the east, right? Or for, at least for North America, the advancements to the east, to to the west. Excuse me, to the west. Yes, and it was also in the eighteen late eighteen seventies and eighteen eighties that the buffalo were mostly wiped out, which was the food, not just the food, everything. You know, the the way of life of the Native Americans in the prairies, and so yeah, there was a process of. Uh, genocide and abandonment is an interesting word for that, that mm. these people were abandoned. So, yeah, I think no, it's important for us, were to, 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 first, for us to look at our history, you know, yeah. and to understand. Thank you. No, first Thank there was a genocide and then there was abandonment. I think that it's, it's two processes here. First you, I don't know, you whip out or whatever, 
you you take their land and then you abandon of course it's a very difficult situation indigenous situation here as you know in south america and in colombia in colombia it's kind of i don't know it's very sad it's very very sad and um, so that's something we have to deal with and i think one of the things i want to make it's more kind of dialogue between I don't know, sanghas or Buddhist practitioners and indigenous population. And so I think it's, it's some, there's something we, I think it's, it's something I want to do. It's something I really want to do. And I'm, I'm, I'm already doing some things here with, with some Mapuche communities. So. Thank you for that. And, and this gives me an opportunity to mention that next month at Ancient Dragon, we will have, Zenju Earthland Manual, who is a Suzuki Roshi lineage teacher, whose new book is called The Shamanic Bones of Zen. So she's looking at the ways in which that kind of um, knowledge of indigenous peoples is part of Zen Buddhism. So anyway, just a plug for that. Thank you so much, Juan Pablo. Maybe it's time now, uh, Xingyu, if you could do our closing uh, chant and dedication. <laughs> 